right, well, good morning. Good to see all of you um, as we begin this incredibly important topic. Uh, it's an important topic. Um, as I was just thinking about just some introductory thoughts that are maybe not in your outline, I was just thinking about what a stewardship we have as Americans. Uh, that word stewardship is important to me. When it comes to politics, government, we have a role to play, which you would not have if you were a peasant in medieval you know, England. You, you wouldn't would ha really have a role. You wouldn't have a choice. Um, but we have choices that we uh, make when we vote and with our involvement in the political process. As uh, Abraham Lincoln said in the Gettysburg Address, you know, government of the people, by the people, for the people. So what that means is that we have a responsibility. And to whom much is given, much is required. And so the Lord wants us to be good stewards of our relationship with the government. And so our desire here is to just uh, lean on and, and draw in, on, in biblical principles so that we can be wise in how we interact with, uh, with politics here in America, in the American setting, um, and just be, be prayerful and uh, be well engaged, and also be reasonable about what we can and can't expect from government. There's just certain limits to what government can do, even if it's good government. I think for us as Christians, you know, we all are yearning for the true king to take his, his open kingdom, uh, Jesus Christ. We want to be subjects of that kingdom openly. Uh, as Paul said, our citizenship is not in this world, but uh, in our citizenship is in heaven. And so our, my desire, and I know it's Ron's as well, that over the number of weeks that we'll be together, that we have a more biblically informed citizenship and that we commit ourselves to that. So today what I'm going to do is just walk through some of Jesus' teachings on, uh, that are relevant to the topic of politics and the world, and so we'll walk through it. But I'm going to begin with just talking about our relationship with the surrounding culture. And, you know, we just talked about this a little bit. Some of you, many of you are in the class we just finished in BFL. Um, you know, finished. That was the hot button topic. We got, got through all of those hot buttons, and you guys are all good with that, right? We, we've covered everything. Every question you might have on hot buttons, uh, we've covered. So we've moved on now to politics. So we're, um, but no, we, we talked about the fact that, that Christianity in America is in a decaying orbit of popular esteem. In other words, that Christianity was seen better 50 years ago by the general culture, by the media, by newspapers, et cetera, than it is now, certainly 100 years ago. And so we have to be aware of that. We also have to understand that decaying orbit in light of the worldwide scene and uh, 2,000 years of church history. For the most part, overwhelmingly, our brothers and sisters in Christ, the redeemed have not had a favorable relationship with the surrounding culture and with the government. Uh, they have, in some, in many cases, been openly persecuted, uh, incarcerated, not able to, uh, to preach the gospel clearly, not able to carry on their faith. So even today, there are certain persecuting nations, though not many, but where you, know, you would be arrested if you tried to carry out your evangelical faith, especially as a pastor, as a leader. North Korea comes to mind, places like that. Um, but around the world and for 2,000 years, the church has had a, generally a hostile relationship with the world, not by our choice. We don't desire to be hated and persecuted, uh, but because that's the nature. And we're going to see that in some of Jesus' teachings. So now our, our immediate context is things have gotten very hot in the political world since Donald Trump got elected president. And so I, I did some of this Jesus in politics material back in 2016 when the election was really a hot topic and people were trying to decide, you know, how to engage. 
Um, and I came across this quote uh, that Je Chesterton gave, G.K. Chesterton, said, seemingly from the dawn of man, all nations have had governments and all nations have been ashamed of them. Well, that's just him. He's very sarcastic uh, in a lot of things he writes. But, you know, I think it was Churchill that said, you know, democracy is the worst possible government in, in the world, but the best of all that's ever been tried. And it's a very pessimistic view. Um, and I think we see that. We're like, you know, I, I think government of the people, by the people, for the people is better than all the other forms. But when you find out what the people are and what they believe and what they vote for, you're like, yeah, I don't agree with that. And so it's, it's just there's that sense of the challenge that we face in politics. And there are different reactions that people have. But, you know, last, uh, last election, 2016, there uh, seemed to be for, you know, many Bible-believing Christians, uh, two bleak choices. It was difficult to decide. You had Donald Trump on the one side and Hillary Clinton on the other, and that was very difficult. Some people decided not to vote at all, but some people saw about that view that that's a squandering of a precious resource, a stewardship. Um, other people said they're going to hold their noses and vote for this one or hold their noses and vote for that one, which is, you know, obviously you don't want to have to do uh, something like that. Um, for me personally, I've laid my cards on the table. I can never support any candidate that would ever uh, be, support abortion rights, ever. I don't care what, what party they're from. I'll never vote for somebody like that. The reason I say that, I'm not a single-issue issue voter, but I'm, I'm a single-issue disqualifier, if you know what I mean. I'm, I'm just going to disqualify somebody because I would think government, the basic, the basic commitment of government is to protect life, liberty, and property. Uh, you know, without due process of law, that no one would lose those. So that if you don't protect those things, you don't basically know how to do that, then you shouldn't govern. That, that's my thought. So that's just fundamental. Um, and I would invite you also to share a similar conviction. Um, for me, it's difficult to see one of the, we are basically a two-party system. And one of, the, one of those parties, the Democratic Party, has just wedded itself to pro-abortion views. And until they do, I think, for me personally, they're disqualified from really any, any level. I would never vote for any of them. Unfortunately, politics seems to be, uh, you know, the art of compromise. And, and I think this goes on all the time. Someone once said, you know, you don't, what was it, uh, laws are like sausages. You don't want to know what goes into making them. <laughs> Which you know, worries me because I actually like sausages. And I'm like, what do you mean? But it's like, you don't want to ask. It's like Paul said, don't ask the question in the meat market. All right? You don't want to know. Like, I remember years ago hearing of something called meat byproducts. It's like, what is that? You don't want to know. Um, but same thing with laws. And what that means is that politicians from across the aisle gather together and push bills through that they don't fully believe in, but they do it to compromise so that they can get a return favor next month with a different bill. And so this is just the nature of politics. So then the electorate has to do the same thing. They have to kind of compromise. And for us as Christians, it's just not something we want to do is make compromises. It's say, of all of the important ethics and important views, which ones are you willing to pitch? That's a difficult question for us. And so it's a, you know, it's a challenge. So that election last year uh, or in 2016 brought many to that point. Al Mohler in his briefing on October 10th, the day after uh, the debate between Clinton and Trump, he argued that against the great evangelical embarrassment as acting of a, a, apologist for Donald Trump's moral character. That was the difficulty at the time. So now things are, you know, now that he's been president for a couple of years uh, and you see the kind of policies, I think that's where most evangelical Christians are satisfied with many of the policies, but not all of them. 
And so he, uh, Moeller, talked about a marriage of convenience between evangelicals and the Republican Party because the Democratic, Party, the, the, the Democratic Party's decisive move in 1972 to embrace the mores of the sexual revolution of the 60s and what he called the untouchable sacrament of abortion on demand. The Republican Party opposed these stances and became the political partner of the evangelical movement. Well, I think we just have to evaluate that. We have to evaluate all things. I don't, I don't sense with many Republican candidates the kind of passion or commitment to pro-life causes that I have. Uh, some of them do. Um, but many, it's just, again, a matter of convenience or as getting as many votes as they can. Um, so at any rate, let's, for us, uh, and I said this last week, my desire is to major and center on the Word of God, on the Scriptures. My sociological and political analysis is flawed. Um, it's not perfect. Uh, all of us have an opinion. Uh, but I, what I want to do is I want to walk through uh, the kingship of Jesus scripturally and try to understand what Jesus said and taught in a way I hope that will be helpful. So let's begin by saying Jesus is king over all. And this is something we talked about last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as I was going through the, the um, headship passage and the, and the head coverings that we're going to do part two on in a few minutes or you know, an hour or two. Um, but it says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And so I talked about that for 15 or 20 minutes. The, uh, that comes from the authority of Jesus. And Jesus said this in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's an incredible statement. Uh, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Also, Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, Jesus said, all things have been committed to me by my Father. Um, also, Ephesians 1, 20 through 22, it says that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and ahead, appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Now, that's an amazing statement, but Jesus, that's just another way of saying all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is appointed as head over everything, not just everything concerning the church, like he's in charge of like the, uh, that's his department or bureau that he runs. No, he's head over everything in the universe for the benefit of the church or on behalf of the church. Does that make sense? So his, his authority over all things has a good purpose, and that good purpose is the benefit of his people, the church. And that's amazing, isn't it? To know that that Christ sovereignly, providentially rules over the events of life for the benefit of his people. That's encouraging. Um, also, Revelation 19, 11 and 12, uh, it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. His he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Also in that same vision, Revelation 19, he is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he has many crowns. He rules over all things. He is the sovereign, the king of the world. Abraham Kuyper said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. What does that mean to you, that quote, as you look at that from uh, Abraham Kuyper? What does that quote mean to you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it flows from creation. Uh, you know, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. So God the Father created everything in the universe through Jesus. And so that is where the sense of ownership comes. It's His stuff. 
So God the Father made it through him, and he, he creates it. So for us, we need to realize it's not like there are these realms and spheres and all that, and Jesus uh, rules over this, and then everything else is like a separation of powers. Um, there is no separation of powers uh, when it comes. Now, separation of powers is very good for sinners. We want it. That's why this government is the most stable and peace-producing government that the planet Earth has ever seen. It's because the founding fathers understood from Christianity a basic uh, understanding of human depravity, that power corrupts. And so when you have separation of powers, the executive, judicial, and legislative, and they're separated, it's that you can't have human beings have you know, one person as a tyrant dominating everything. But what it's, what's interesting, there's a verse in Isaiah that actually addresses that. It says, the Lord is our king, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our judge, it is he who will save us. That's one verse that has all three branches of the American government and say the Lord is. The Lord is the king, he's the lawgiver, he's the judge, he rules it. And also he's the one that saves us. I love that verse. So anyway, look that one up. If you're interested in politics, that's a great verse. Also, C.S. Lewis said, there is no neutral ground in the, in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. So that's the essence of that spiritual battle that we see going on. But the world is presently mixed, like the parable of the wheat and the weeds. That's a very important parable. Jesus said uh, there's a parable that he gave uh, that an owner of a field sowed good seed in his field, but at night while everyone was sleeping, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And then when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And in the parable, the man's servant said, you know, I thought you only sowed good seed in your field. He said, an enemy has done this. The servant said, do you want us to go and root them up, the weeds? He said, no, because if you root them up, you'll root up the wheat also. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at that time, the harvest will slept, uh, separate the wheat from the weeds. And then he explains that parable very plainly. It just talks about the mixed nature of this world. The elect, God's people, grow up amongst unbelievers and uh, amongst people who will never come to Christ. And they live their lives in close contact with one another. That's the mixed up world that we live in, that we live in and it creates all kinds of difficulties. So the question for us we have to ask is how is Christ's kingship uh, exerted over those who do not profess allegiance to him as king? So it's contrary to their will, contrary to their desires, and yet he's sovereign over them. And it's an interesting uh, feature. It's just how he navigates their decisions. The king's heart is like a water course in the hands of the Lord. He directs it whichever way he pleases, Proverbs 21.1. And so he's sovereignly ruling over the decisions made by uh, people who don't love God, people who don't follow him. But someone enters the kingdom, and that's the language. When you come to faith in Christ, you enter the kingdom with your heart and your mind. And what that means is you have chosen to take Jesus' kingly yoke upon you. That word yoke, I think, means kingly authority. You've chosen to take his kingly yoke upon you gladly because you believe his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And you want to follow and obey him. It is your deepest desire to please your king and to obey his commands. It's your greatest grief when you don't. It's the biggest, the thing that brings the greatest sorrow in a Christian's life is sin and the way we disobey Christ. And the greatest delight we have is that he would be pleased with us. So that means you're in the kingdom. And that would include some politicians and leaders who are seeking to do their, their work for the glory of God. And many do that. 
Um, so we'll talk more about that. But how should Christians express Christ's laws, commands, values, and morals to those who are spiritually dead? That's the problem, and that's the challenge that we have. Okay? Bruce Ashford, in his book, One Nation Under God, said this, Christians seem particularly divided by politics now. For the past few decades, many evangelicals strongly embraced an active role in politics while actually retreating from other aspects of popular culture, such as arts, entertainment, science. Ashford said this, we evangelicals have never stopped wanting to change our country, but we've too often voluntarily limited ourselves to one tool, the hammer of political activism. And when you, all you have is a hammer, every problem begins to look like a nail. But recently, with a very public losses in the area of gay marriage, for example, the continual failure to overturn Roe versus Wade, some evangelicals have begun to advocate giving up political involvement altogether. Uh, Cal Thomas was one of them at that time. Even if we do not retreat from politics, the questions uh, looming as we move ahead in the future seem daunting. The astonishing rapidity in, of change in the national, national discussion of the homosexual agenda, uh, now beyond gay marriage to transgender issues, seems alarming. 2016 Iowa law that seems to mandate that even churches would provide transgender bathrooms and refer people to refer to people in public by pronouns aligning with their preferred gender speaks of a pretty scary future in which basic religious liberty is at stake. So you see these kinds of things going on, and you're like, well, what are we supposed to do about it? How do we engage? All right, so Jesus uh, said, my kingdom is not of this world. So let's walk through that and try to understand these teachings that come from Christ. Uh, Jesus' temptation. Could someone read for us Matthew 4, 8 through 10? All right, so Satan is offering Jesus the world. You know, uh, all of its power, all of its glory, all of its trappings. Um, and all he has to do, and I, I still believe this is the most arrogant thing that any creature has ever done in history. This, this moment right here. That this creature, and Satan is a creature, says to his creator, worship me. And that is a good thing for us as sinners to study. You know, Jesus said to unbelievers, you're of your father the devil. So that means that that devilish pride is in all unbelievers, and we are being weaned and sanctified out of it. So it's just good to study that moment when some creature says to his creator, get down on your face and worship me. So, uh, but the, the prize being offered is the world, um, and Jesus doesn't want it. He is not desirous of the world and its glory the way that normal people are. He's not after that. Um, secondly, Key text, John 18, 36 through 38. Someone read this for us, if you would. This is a very important passage for our study this morning. First assertion is that Jesus is a king. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate circled back and zeroed in on it. You are a king then? Jesus said, you are right in saying that I am a king. Yes, I am a king. So he is a king. Uh, he began his preaching ministry, Mark 1.15, in this way. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So he came. That was his message. The kingdom of God is at hand. So as I said a moment ago, one way to look at salvation, the essence of salvation is to leave the ranks of the rebels, to leave that rebellion that's been going on against God the king, and come back under his kingly authority. That's what it means to repent. And to believe the good news, the good news is you're not going to be punished for your rebellion. It's incredible. He actually will take on himself the punishment we deserve for rebelling against God the King. 
all of our rebellion, past, present, and future, forgiven. What an amnesty, and what a cost for that amnesty, his own blood. But that's when he says, repent and believe. Those are the two verbs that are connected to evangelism and missions. Every individual needs to do both of those things. Repent of your own rebellions against the kingship, against God the king. Repent and believe the good news that your sins are forgiven through faith in Christ. Also, Matthew 12, 28, Jesus said, If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. All right, so the kingdom of God is here. It is, it's, it's come. Um, it's all already and not yet. That's what we want to say, and we'll talk more about that. But the kingdom has already begun. It's already been inaugurated. It's been started, but it's not been consummated yet. And so in the Lord's Prayer, we say, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I look on those as basically the same thing. The coming kingdom, the second coming of Christ, will produce a situation in which God's will will be done on earth as it is right now in heaven. And that's a wonderful thing, but we do not see that now. All right, secondly, Jesus' kingdom, therefore, we would say, is not complete. Uh, even here, he's saying, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. I've, I've always seen that as an invitation to Pilate. Pilate, set aside your judge's cap right now and realize who I am and who you are and listen to me, right? Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So can we just set aside this moment in which you're sitting on a judge's chair and you're evaluating me and cross over from death to life? But Pilate very sarcastically says, what is truth? There's nothing wrong with asking what is truth if you stand and listen to the answer. But if you say what is truth and walk away, you're saying there is no truth. Truth is unknowable. And so that's what Pilate did. Um, and so he's... He's saying, everyone who believes in truth listens to me. And in listening, whoever hears my voice and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life, John 5, 24. So you hear him and you cross over. That's how we enter the kingdom. Third, in Jesus' statement to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world. It doesn't have its origin in the world, and it's not characterized by the world. It's not a worldly kingdom. All right, his proof that he gives is, if it were, my servants would fight for me. So what does that tell you then about the way Jesus evaluates worldly kingdoms? Worldly kingdoms advance by the power of the sword. It's been the consistent pattern. They're, they're, it's, it's on the back of military conquest that empires grow across history. Uh, Jesus' kingdom doesn't... Uh, advance that way. Um, his kingdom does not originate from worldly power, and yet uh, no, neither is it, sorry, advanced by worldly means, okay? So that's why we could say the Crusades, for example, were the greatest misconstrual of Christian mission there's ever been in the history of the church. That is not what we're about, is going militarily to reconquer the city, the physical city of Jerusalem from the Muslims. So that was just that worldly mentality that Christendom in Europe had back then, and they were just used to convert or die. You know, like the Franks would go and a, some Germanic tribe would be conquered in battle, and then you had a choice, mass baptism or mass death. It was amazing the revivals that happened, you know, over and over. It's just huge quantities of people are walking in, dunking, and then walking out, unconverted before and after. And so that's what we see. But there's that mentality. It's a worldly mentality, and the, the, the difference is how the kingdom advances. 
all right? Simply put, in, in light of this, Christianity has advanced, uh, its individual members have, have advanced the kingdom not by killing but by dying. You know, John 12, 24, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And so it's been martyrs, it's been people who have died to themselves and gone to difficult places. That's how the kingdom advances. And also Jesus' kingdom doesn't originate from the world. The world doesn't give Jesus his power. So there'll be no plebiscites in heaven, no elections in heaven. You, got, you know that. We have no process here. All right, we're going to get to heaven. He's the king. <laughs> and there'll be no, like, you know, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, there's no kind of circling back on Jesus. How am I doing? Am I good? What's my approval rating? None of that's going on. That's done. He's the king. And so his power comes from himself, not from us. We don't give him his power. All right, no battle, no election, no Supreme Court decision will ever bring in the kingdom of God. So what does that do? It limits government. Government does not advance the kingdom of God. That's not how it's going to happen. It gets advanced by the spirit of God through the people of God, not by governmental processes. Not to say that decisions are not favorable to ethics and values of the kingdom. That is that we would say for sure. All right. Parables teach the hidden nature and growth of the kingdom of God. Again and again, Jesus introduced the parables of the kingdom by the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, kingdom parables show hidden mysterious growth. Luke 17, 28 and 21, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, look here or there, for you see the kingdom of God is among you. So it's not observable in that way. And then this one, someone read Matthew 13, 33. The genius of Jesus' teaching. I mean, you look at those few words, that's a very short parable, maybe one of the shortest. And it's, it's just this kind of everyday life kitchen parable, right? And in that, he encapsulates both the macro and micro advance of the kingdom of God. It's really quite remarkable. What do I mean by macro? How the kingdom has advanced from Jerusalem through Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's been a hidden growth, right? How is it that Christianity spiritually conquered the Roman Empire? Did they even know it was happening at the time? Little by little by little, more and more slaves and soldiers and merchants and all that came to faith in Christ. So much so that within a very short amount of time, three centuries, which things moved very slowly back then. That's why the Roman Empire was able to rule the world, parts of it anyway, for a thousand years, which will never happen again. Things just moved slowly back then. 300 years in, Constantine, the Roman emperor, saw saw it politically expedient at least, if not there was a genuine faith on his part, politically expedient to declare himself a Christian. Now you think, if you had told Pontius Pilate that, it's like, do you realize that 300 years from now, the Roman emperor will think that this man is God? Well, how did that happen? Silent, secret, hidden growth. And friends, that's going on right now. The most important thing that happens on any given day is individual people repenting and coming to genuine faith in Christ. The, the stuff that makes the, the headlines and all, that's not the real story. So it's like yeast kind of moving, spreading through until it permeates everything. Not only that, but that's true of individual, genuinely born-again people. This yeast of the kingdom kind of gets in and starts taking everything over. Think about a brand-new convert, right? Do they have any full idea what kind of sanctification is going to happen in their life over the next 30 years? They have no idea. 
It's like, do you realize how many changes you're going to go through? No, you don't. And the Holy Spirit's very wise and not showing because we'd be blown away. We would be like laid, that, laid out. Like, I want to show you all of the mess in your life, all of your sins, all of your bad thoughts, and we're going to deal with that over the next 46 years. It's like, wow, it's too much. Like Jesus said, I have much to say to you more than you can now bear. So the Holy Spirit wisely, little by little, pays out the change. But little by little, the kingdom spreads, if you can picture it that way, through you until you more and more conform to the image of Christ. Jesus got all of that in one little parable. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. Now ponder that. I've been thinking about that parable for years. I think it's awesome. Also, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. So again, the idea is from small to large, from seemingly insignificant to massive, massive. So if we had a little dress rehearsal of Revelation 7, you know, where John saw people from every tribe, language, people, and nation standing before the throne wearing white robes and holding palm branches, wouldn't it be cool to have kind of a dress rehearsal of that, of every genuinely born-again person still alive right now on planet Earth assembled in one place. What do you think that would look like? I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. There's no one place big enough. It's quite amazing. And that's what's happened now over 2,000 years of the spread of the gospel. Incredible. So that's the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom consists of broken-hearted sinners saved by grace. That's how you enter. You come in turning away from yourself, denying yourself, taking up your cross, saying no to you, saying yes to King Jesus. That's the nature of the spread of the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That's in a teaching in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat, or about your body, what you'll wear. Don't worry about your physical things. That's not why you're here. What you're here for is the kingdom of God. Seek that above all things. Let the kingdom of God be the top priority in your life, and then all these other things will be added to you. It's not why you live. It's not promising luxuries. It's not health and wealth, not prosperity gospel. He's saying, I will keep you alive. I'll give you what you need. Seek his kingdom. That's what he's saying. It's a remarkable teaching there, but the kingdom is the most important thing uh, for, should be for every believer. All right, this is, then is the government that we yearn for. We mentioned it a moment ago. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's talk about that for a minute. It's really a, you know, the most famous prayer in the Bible, a prayer that you have prayed certainly before. Uh, look at how it begins. Our Father, not my Father, but our Father, there's a collective sense of brothers and sisters from around the world, intimacy, uh, would be totally fine to say our king, but he says our father. He wants us to have a sense of that, of that intimate love relationship we have with Almighty God, a remarkable thing. He's put the spirit in us crying out Abba, Father, or Daddy, you know, so that we have an intimate relationship with our father. But then look what he says, hallowed be your name. What does that mean to you? We say it, but what does it mean? What does hallowed be your name mean to you? Yeah, hallowed, be sanctified, sacred, set apart as holy, etc. Um, but because it's passive, may your name be hallowed, it's, then there's other people that do the hallowing. God already has hallowed his own name in his own mind. He knows his name is holy. It's not that God needs to have a high esteem for his own name. He already has that. It's that people don't. 
people do not esteem God the way they should. And Jesus is praying essentially a missionary prayer here. May your name be held in honor. May, may people revere you, Father. May they see you as you really are, Almighty God, the Creator, the King. May your name be hallowed. And so in heaven, this will absolutely be true. God's name, his reputation, who he is, will be held in, in perfect esteem by the redeemed. So, but this is a right now prayer. Right now, may your name be hallowed. So we can pray that for each other. We can pray that around the world. And it's also a missionary prayer. And then, as I mentioned, may your kingdom come. Uh, so that's the idea that there is something coming that isn't here yet. And we as Christians know primarily we should think about the second coming of Christ. Uh, so that's when it comes, and it's coming with power and majesty and glory, and all of the enemies of God will be swept away, destroyed at that point. Revelation 19 makes that plain. In the meantime, though, the progressive coming of the kingdom of God happens, as we mentioned, by the yeast moving through the dough, through evangelism and missions, through individual people hearing and <coughs> believing the spread of the gospel. And so may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth the same way it is done in heaven. So we've often talked about this before. How do the angels do God's will? You know, a long time ago, I came across a parenting curriculum that gave us these three words, all the way, right away, with a happy spirit. All right? So the angels do everything God wants. They do it right away, and they are delighted in it. And so we are, when we get to heaven, that's how we'll be. Whatever God wants, we will do it right away, whatever it is. And so that's when the kingdom has come. That's the perfection. That's what we're looking for. All right, now, Christian leadership also, based on the teaching of Jesus, is radically different from human governments. All over the world, leaders use their power to feather their own nests and feed their egos. This is the norm. This is what government has been like. It's a corrupting influence. So when you get in, in power, you feed your ego and feather your nest. You do nepotism. You get your brother to be the king of Spain like Napoleon did and your other brother to be the king of Italy. And, you know, it's, it's, all, it's a family business now, Europe a family business when Napoleon was running things. That's what you do, and you become personally very wealthy, and you live like it. When I was in Cameroon a couple years ago, I, this was uh, remarkable. We were told we had to hustle over to the retreat center because we had to cross the main street of the road. Now, why do we have to cross the street? We just have to do it before the president moves, apparently, at 11 in the morning. <coughs> so that day, he was apparently going to move from one place to the other, and in that case, basically the main street of the city would be shut down for his own protection. <coughs> well, the problem is he usually traveled by helicopter, um, and he just has done this for years, the president of Cameroon. He is the oldest continual, pre uh, I think, president. I mean, he's been elected. Um, I shouldn't say anything. Anyway, you look up the president of Cameroon. You'll see what I'm talking about. He's gone through seven elections and has been elected at a 96% rate year after year. Single party, only one person running. Um, so it's just very, very interesting. But uh, at, when he moves, everything in the city shuts down for as much as half a day. So think of being a merchant or some kind of a tradesman or, or uh, whatever, that on you, your business is on Main Street in Yaoundé, Cameroon, you're shut down for four hours. Why? Because the president says so. And, just, and it's a way of keeping the whole country in thrall, you know, in submission to this kind of power. But Jesus talked about this. You remember when James and John, or actually their mother, came? and wanted to angle for positions in the kingdom. Remember that? It's like, hey, you know, we see what's happening here. You're about to become the king. Grant that may, you know, one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Remember that? Getting mom to do it, all right? I mean, that's weak. 
And it's funny because Jesus answered them. So he goes like right to James and John. He knows exactly who manipulated this whole thing. Not to say that mom didn't want her sons in, that, in those positions of power. What was she asking? Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. What's she asking for? Honor, power, and all the things I was just talking about. Feathering the nest, you know, all that the ego. She's thinking like that, and so are they. So Jesus has to address it. And what's really interesting is the other 10 apostles were very angry with James and John. I think they weren't angry. They're like, why didn't I think of that? You know, should have got my mom last week, but they beat us to it. And so it frustrated, and there starts to be that infighting. So Jesus has to talk to them about how power is uh, delegated and how it works in his kingdom. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, Matthew 20, verse 25, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's an entirely different approach to government. Entirely different approach. So what that means is that, govern, uh, that first of all, places of honor and just honors themselves, rewards, honors, are given in the heavenly kingdom to those that serve the best, to the servants and slaves. Those are the ones that get honored the most. The highest honor goes to the one that served the most, that gave the most, and that's already given away. That's given to Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, because he made himself nothing and became a slave, even to the point of death, dying on a cross. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So the number one place in the kingdom is already given. That's Jesus. But he's also taught us a principle of how positions of honor are given. Notice that Jesus doesn't say there are no positions of honor in heaven. Notice that he doesn't say there, are no, there is no authority in heaven. It's all perfect egalitarianism. He doesn't say that. He's saying, let me tell you how those positions are given. You want to sit in that seat, then you have to be a servant. You want to be the highest, you have to be a slave, just as I came not to be served but to serve. By the way, it's an important statement too. Jesus entered the world not to get people to serve him. I mean, it's really important for us to understand that. We want to serve Christ, but just understand, he doesn't need you. He doesn't need your service. He, he, fundamentally, you need him to serve you by dying for you and washing you, washing you with his atoning blood. That's what he said. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, again, John 13. You remember when Jesus was doing the foot washing? Comes to Peter. And Peter asked, he asks interesting questions. <laughs> Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I mean, Jesus has the bowl right there. He's got the towel. It's all ready to go. It's like, you know, no, I was going to skip you, Peter. I'm going to wash everybody else's, not you. Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus said, you do not understand what I'm doing, but later you will understand. So in other words, just let me do this, and then you'll understand it more fully later. He understands it now. But it's a symbol. And Peter says, you will never wash my feet. It's a very strong statement. Like into the ages, you're not going to wash my feet. What's interesting is Jesus was washing his feet 30 seconds later. I find that interesting. That's, that's just, you know, so much for Peter telling Jesus no, all right? But that was Peter. He did that. And Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So that's what he means. I came not to be served, but to serve. If I don't wash you, you can't come in my kingdom. And then he said, then he's always trying to take charge. That's Peter. He said, then not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Give me the whole bath. 
Jesus is ready for that. You never get ahead of Jesus. He said, a person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. That's one of the most encouraging things she has ever said to a person. You are clean, but you need your feet washed. (laughs) It's an amazing thing. You can be clean and still need to be washed. That's justification, sanctification. Anyway, he washes their feet. Then he goes back, and he puts on his clothes, returns to to his place. He said, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. I didn't stop being teacher or Lord when I washed your feet. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So in other words, all Christian leadership of any type needs to be servant leadership. So that means elders within a church, okay? It means husbands within a home. It means elected officials who are Christians and who want to glorify God with their political careers, that that's their desire. They yearn to glorify God. I believe this is why we generally in America call them public servants. I think that's the influence of Christianity. That, was not a, that would not be something you would have seen in a, in a pagan realm, to be, be calling the, the satraps and prefects servants but we call them servants, even though they frequently do not behave like servants, all right? But they, the elected officials are servants. Now, that's the nature of Jesus' teaching on government on some basic principles. There are many other things we could bring in, but let's talk about our culture. Let's talk about our setting, all right? The world in which we live. And so here I want to bring in the image of Babylon, all right? Limit, living godly lives in, quote, Babylon. Jesus knew that he would leave his people in this world, all right, John 17, 14 through 17. Would love somebody to read that for us. All right, this is an incredibly moving moment. This is the night before Jesus is crucified. He's going to be arrested that very night. And this is the last thing he does with them before he's arrested in John's gospel. His praise for them. And his prayer seems to be incredibly passionate here, uh, a deep concern that he is leaving his people in this world. And they need protection. Father, protect them. And so there's that sense, I'm leaving my children in this world. And we need to be protected. And the the threat is spiritual. That our enemies, the world of flesh and the devil, may so conspire to assault our souls as to draw us away from salvation, to draw us away from following Christ. We're in danger. We should not be complacent, as we saw in 1 Corinthians. If anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. We are in danger. And so Jesus prays for us. But praise God, his prayers are effective. No one is going to be lost. No one's going to be lost. None of the elect are going to be lost. But still, sanctify them and protect them. All right, so then our challenge is how can we live in, quote, Babylon? Now, why do I bring in this idea of Babylon? One verse in the New Testament uh, is particularly poignant on this. Uh, 1 Peter 5.13. Peter, writing at the end of that epistle, says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Really interesting verse. Traditionally, we don't know for certain where Peter was when he wrote this, but uh, church tradition has him in Rome. We know that he was crucified upside down in Rome. So he was there, and so there's every indication that the she who is in Babylon is the local church there in Rome, the very ones that Paul wrote the epistle uh, to uh, the Romans, that, that church in Rome. And Paul says their faith is being reported all over the world. And so everybody knew about that church in Rome. If that's true then, 
Babylon, according to 1 Peter 5.13, refers to Rome. And so he's using a very powerful Old Testament image of Babylon. There's lots of verses about Babylon. Now, Babylon was a literal place, a literal empire. But we also have in the book of Isaiah especially prophecies about Babylon that seem to go beyond just the immediate fall of that worldly or that earthly kingdom. Later, in the book of Revelation, it uses the term Babylon to refer to the world system characterized by godless power of all sorts, but primarily military and economic. So wherever you see the dominant military force on earth and, the, uh, or, and or the dominant economic power, there's an economic side to Babylon and there's a military or governmental side to Babylon. Um, he implies uh, that that spirit of Babylon can move from era to era. It just, it's just like a phoenix, an evil, wicked phoenix. It rises up from the ashes of the last world-dominating empire and then moves to the next one. I mean, there was a time it was Spain, and they're plundering the New World with all this gold, and it's just the river of gold going back from the New World with slave labor going back to, to, uh, to Spain. And so they were, I would think, the richest, most powerful empire on earth at that point, after, from Columbus until the Spanish Armada sank, and that kind of ended it for Spain. I mean, they were powerful, but not the most powerful. Uh, it just keeps moving. You know that it just moves to the most powerful empire you know, on earth. So what that means is that we should not imagine that it's extinct in our lifetime and will kind of resurrect in some other time later, or that it skips all of that and you know, the 2,000 years of, of history and then pops up again only at the end of the world in the book of Revelation. But no, it's just, it's just the world. It's just another way of talking about the world that we should not love the world or anything in the world. So it's that, but it's more than just the world. It's the organized power structures of the world that produce mass wealth or produce political, governmental power and domination. So that's what we, I think the Bible would say, the spirit of Babylon. So we should look to the spirit of Babylon wherever the most powerful nations on earth have dominated for their brief phase of world history. This does not mean that everything in that nation is essentially evil, for godly Daniels can influence the, the government for good. Let me tell you about that. If you look at the book of Daniel, it seems that God was doing a work in Nebuchadnezzar, so much so that he gives an incredible testimony about God's goodness to him in changing his mind from the mind of an animal to the mind of a human. And he writes and just praises the God of heaven. And so I, for one think that we're going to meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven as a redeemed person. Also, the four beasts that came up out of the ocean in Daniel 7, it says of the first beast that it was raised up on its two feet and the heart of a man was given to it. It's interesting. So we would imagine that at least in the final phases of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, that he reigned as a more enlightened and loving ruler. We don't have any record of this, but keep in mind the advice that Daniel gave him before his mind was changed to the mind of an animal. Be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your wickedness by doing what is right and your oppression of the poor and needy. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Daniel said that. What a bold thing to say to Nebuchadnezzar. But could it be that God, by giving him the heart of a man, then he ruled in a good way? So you could be Babylon but still ruled well. But there's still satanic and demonic forces that are going that are far more powerful than you can be aware or control that are bigger than you bigger than any one single ruler. So that's what I mean by Babylon. So what does it mean for us? Well, we have to keep ourselves free from Babylon's defilements. That's a consistent teaching on this theme of Babylon. Remember, Daniel resolved 
under Old Testament regulations that he would not eat uh, the foods the, that the Jews were not allowed to eat. And in order to be certain about it, you know, he didn't have 1 Corinthians, which is eat without raising any questions of conscience. Uh, and Jesus hadn't declared all foods clean yet. So he decided to eat no meat at all. Um, and so he ate only vegetables and water. But the language is he resolved not to defile himself. So it was a matter of defilement for him. Also, James 1.27 says, Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, is look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So that we would not be polluted by Babylon, wherever we see it. Um, and 1 John 2 says plainly, the, do not love the world or anything in the world. That's, that's, again, I think we could link that to Babylon. Do not love the spirit of Babylon or the Babylon world, uh, you know, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Um, and then 2 Peter 3 is a marvelous text on how we should be pure in the lives we live. Someone read that for us, if you would. There are a few passages in the New Testament that are so clear and efficient in telling you how to live your life in this present age. Be holy and speed the day of God. And you do that, I think, by evangelism. That's how we get it. That's what, you know, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So that's what's going on, the salvation of unconverted elect people. So as you look forward to the day of God and speed, it's coming. So look forward to heaven, be excited about heaven, be a hopeful person, live for heaven, and then live a godly, upright life in this present evil age and speed the day of God through evangelism and mission. It's the best way you can live your life. All right. Uh, also, Jeremiah told the remnant that was going to be translocated from Judea, from Jerusalem, to literally to Babylon. He told them that they should seek the peace of Babylon, for in Babylon's peace, they would have their own peace and prosperity. So Jeremiah 29, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So this is a vital teaching, and many people talk about that, praying for and seeking the peace, the shalom, the prosperity of the city, because in that we have peace. So we should be concerned about the temporal things of America, of the city, so to speak, in which we live, because as America prospers in a godly sort of way, we also will find peace and prosperity. That's the desire. And that's also what we pray for, isn't it? As we pray uh, to governmental leaders that we will have peace in our lives, that the government will keep peace and so that the gospel can spread. So that's the role of government, to keep evil at bay so that the gospel can advance. However, in the same book, Jeremiah, you should realize what the future of the city in which you live is. Where are we heading with all this? And so we have to have eschatology in mind too. There is no permanent kind of peace of Babylon here. And so Jeremiah 51 says, flee from Babylon, run for your lives. Do not be destroyed because of her sins. It is time for the Lord's vengeance. He will pay her what she deserves. Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drunk her wine. Therefore, they have now gone mad. Babylon will suddenly fall and be broken, wail over her. So in other words, all of these Babylon systems are going get, to get destroyed. <coughs> So like that statue, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue with the head of gold and the chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet partly iron, partly clay. 
all of that is going to become chaff on the threshing floor. A wind will sweep it away without leaving a trace. And then the rock, cut out but not by human hands, that's Jesus' kingdom, will become a huge mountain that fills the whole earth. That's Daniel chapter 2. That's where we're going with all this. So just understand that Babylon, wherever you find it, is temporary and it's under the judgment of God. So all of these earthly systems will um, be crushed in the end. Therefore, we have to flee Babylon spiritually. You can't physically get out of it, but you have to flee it in terms of purity and holiness. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you may not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. So in other words, that's a life of purity and holiness, just as 2 Peter 3 told us. All right, so those are important themes uh, that I think are, are timeless, uh, beneficial, and helpful. They may not answer all of the specific questions that we may have. Kevin DeYoung uh, wrote a practical article during uh, the 2016 election that I commend to you. I'm not going to walk through it, but it's there for you to read. I'm going to give you my own kind of practical advice from Romans 14. Um, and this is, you know, when people didn't know what to do. Should I vote for this? Should I vote for that? Should I vote for another third-party candidate? Should I not vote? I mean, there are Christians all over the map not knowing what to do. And so they're going to pastors like Kevin DeYoung and saying, what should I do? Um, and so he gave that advice. I like to look to Romans 14. I think it'll give us the necessary counsel that we would seek. Uh, vote, but accept each other. Okay, Romans 14.1 says, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. So let's not judge each other about what we do about politics in terms of matters of freedom and conscience. Therefore, judge, uh, vote, but don't judge each other. Uh, Romans 14.4 says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Uh, thirdly, vote fully convinced in your own mind. Verse 5, One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Vote as to the Lord <clears throat> in view of your relationship with Jesus. Romans 14, 7 and 8, None of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Fifth, recognize the uh, lordship of uh, Jesus supersedes all our votes. Verse 9, for this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. So that just goes back to the fact that he's king of kings and lord of lords. So just be mindful of that. Vote in light of judgment day. Verse 10 through 12, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Vote in light of the far greater worth of the kingdom of God. Verse 17, <clears throat> for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Kingdom is more important. Vote and keep your controversial views quiet. Verse 22, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is a man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. And then verse 23, everything that does not come from faith is sin, so vote, vote by faith. Let me add some, some thoughts to this here at the very end. I think it is very right for us to have amicable discussions about controversial topics. So Paul clearly talked about meat sacrifice to idols, uh, you know, to get people to a unity on that. I think it's okay and it's right to talk about, like I, I just did earlier, about my views about parties that embrace abortion rights. I think we should talk about that. I think we should challenge brothers and sisters that maybe don't share necessarily those convictions. I think that's fine to do. You've got to choose your forum and your demeanor and realize that God can use 
patient, loving persuasion. That's what iron sharpens iron means. So I would add that also to the advice. Okay, so let's close in prayer and we'll go to corporate worship.